0: Well, good morning again. It's great to be worshiping with you and great to be able to hear God's word to us this morning. Uh, this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Psalms. Last week we heard Plune Truce preach Psalm 92, and this Sunday we're going to look at Psalm 103. So if you have a copy of God's word with you, would you please open it to Psalm 103? Psalm 103 begins with a call to bless the Lord. To bless the Lord means to praise Him, to give Him thanks. It's a call to worship Him. And the first two verses of this psalm set out a maxim for us, a truism that helps us to understand our own hearts. If you look at the first two verses, in verse 1, David commands his own soul, to bless the Lord, to bless the Lord with all that is within him, with his whole heart, his whole being. And then in verse 2, he commands his soul again to forget not, to remember all the Lord's benefits. So bless the Lord with all your heart and remember all of his benefits. So what we learn from those two opening verses is that remembering only some of God's benefits will likely result in praising God in part. A diluted understanding of God's love, of His benefits, will result in a diluted worship of Him. To say it another way, if you have a partial understanding of God's love, and grace, and mercy, then you will also likely have a partial worship of Him and devotion to Him. Those two things, knowledge and worship, theology and doxology, are related. They are bound together within our hearts. So the inverse is also true. If you find that you have half-hearted Worship That you come in here and you mumble God's praise rather than shouting it. It's likely that the reason is that you have a half-hearted understanding or even memory of God's grace. Boiling over affection for God doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from a fire that is kindled by knowledge of who God is and what He has done. One last way to put it is that robust theology, healthy theology, healthy understanding of God leads to robust doxology, to good and right and passionate worship. So that's what we get from those two verses. So as we should always do when we come to God and His Word, let's examine ourselves. What is your worship of God like? Do you have warm affections for Him? Would you say that your love for God is properly kindled? Do you run to God in your worst moments? Or do you hide from Him? Do you find yourself coming in here and going through the motions? Not blessing the Lord with all that is within you, but praising Him with your lips while your heart is far from Him. The beauty of this psalm today is that David doesn't just tell us this truism. He doesn't just tell us that we should remember God's benefits. He reminds us of them. He shows them to us, he puts God's love on display in front of us and invites us and actually invites all of creation to boil over in worship of him. So let's read this psalm, but before we do, let's ask God that he would help us not just to understand it, but to have right response to him and his word. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts. Give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might see your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us joy as we hear the wonderful benefits of your love for us. May we respond in joyful worship of you. Speak now, Holy Spirit, your people are listening. Amen. This is Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, Shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this psalm today, there are hints that show us that this is actually primarily a reflection of David on the exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt. The Exodus was the prototypical salvation of God for his people. This is how Israel would understand all of God's redeeming and saving them afterward. I still think David wrote this, but a few of the hints in this psalm point to the fact that he is looking at the Exodus as that picture of God's present salvation for all of us. He's drawing on the past to understand the present. The first hint we get that this is talking about the Exodus is the forgetfulness mentioned in verse 2. Notice it doesn't say in a straightforward way that we should remember all of God's benefits, but that we should forget not all His benefits. This, if you remember, is the particular problem that comes up again and again and again with Israel after they leave Egypt. Remember, God put his awful and amazing plagues on Egypt and protected Israel from them. They finally are redeemed from slavery, and then they get to the edge of the Red Sea and don't know where to go with the army of Egypt behind them. What do they start doing? God brought us out here to die. He brought us out of Egypt because there weren't enough graves in Egypt for us to be buried in. He has abandoned us. How quickly they forget God's faithfulness. How does God respond? He parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land, and as the Egyptian army chases after them, the Red Sea collapses over them and kills them. And you can seriously almost still hear the song of praising in Exodus 15 when Israel starts complaining again that God hasn't provided water for them to drink. So God shows Moses a log that he throws into the bitter water to make it sweet for them to drink. Again they forget, and again God provides. It's just the next chapter that they're grumbling again because God hasn't provided any bread for them to eat. They say again, shockingly, that they wish they would have just died in Egypt rather than come out into the desert. So God rains down bread from heaven to provide for them. Again and again and again, God provides for his people. And again and again and again, God's people forget that he has just provided. Another clue in this psalm that it's a reflection on the Exodus is found in verses 6 and 7. Look at these verses with me. They say, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The mention of oppression and Moses and Israel make it very obvious that David is reflecting back on the Exodus. But the particular wording here points to one story in the wake of the Exodus, as Israel is in the desert. And it bleeds over into the next verse, into verse 8. Verse 8 is a quote from Exodus 34, verse 6. This quote comes at the end of a long debacle for Israel. Israel, again, had forgotten the benefits that the Lord had provided them with. He led them to Mount Sinai. And at this moment, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. When he's up there, Israel starts complaining that it's taking too long. And so they convince Aaron to help them build an idol, a golden calf. And they look at the calf and Aaron says to them, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Israel forgets again. The Lord is rightly angry. And He punishes Israel. And part of the punishment that is kind of hanging out there is that He threatens that He is going to remove His presence from Israel. He says to Moses, Go on to the land of Canaan, but I'm not going with you. Moses pleads with God not to abandon them. And in the midst of his pleading with God, Moses says this to him. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I might know you. It's that same phrase we get in verse 7 of Psalm 103. He made his ways known to Moses. And the way that God answered the request is this famous story of God showing his glory to Moses in Exodus 34. He tells Moses that he can't see his face, his full glory, or he would die. But he will show him a veiled version of that glory. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and then passes by. And as he passes by, he lets him see his glory. And what we get in Exodus 34 is not a visual description of what Moses sees. Instead, we are told that God declares his name to Moses. This is the name that God declares to him. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." This then becomes the most fundamental description of who God is in the Old Testament. And the beginning of that declaration becomes a summary of who God is again and again in the Old Testament. It's quoted here in verse 8 of Psalm 103. David says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This then becomes the center Of this psalm. How do I stir up my heart to bless the Lord? How do I rouse myself from my slumber to worship God and give Him thanks? The answer that this psalm gives is to remember the character of God. Remind yourself of who God is and what He has done. This is how we stoke the fire of worship and thanksgiving in our hearts. So David tells us who the Lord is and what he has done. And I would love to spend a couple of hours with you unpacking all of those benefits, but we have CE today and Plune is ready to teach. So I'm not going to do that. Instead, we're going to focus in. We're going to focus in on verses 8 through 14, which make up the center of this psalm. We're going to focus in on one of these particular benefits that David is praising the Lord for. So let's read verses 8 through 14 together. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now there are three parts in this section that we're looking at. First in verse 8, we see the recounting of the Lord's character. And then in verses 9 through 10, we are told what that means when His character is applied to us. And then in verses 11 through 14, David gives us three comparisons of God's love for us. We just read God's character recounted in verse 8. Let me read verses 9 and 10 again for us to see how His character is applied to us in our sin. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Now, we've talked about Israel's sin and Israel's Forgetfulness, but if we are really going to let this psalm touch us, if we are really going to let this psalm apply to us, we need to talk about our sins as well. Our sins range from the occasional to the everyday, from the forgetful to the planned out, from the sins of our thoughts and our words to our deeds and our habits. Some of us in here have ongoing pride that looks at others as worthless and ourselves as worthy. Some of us are in a recurring web of lies, whether it be in business or relationships, we spin and twist and turn things to hide our faults and to accentuate our strengths. Some of us jump in and out of internet pornography Some of us have committed adultery or are having sex with someone who isn't our husband or wife. Some of us are drunkards or gluttons, abusing God's good gifts till they destroy our decision-making and our bodies. Some of us are people-pleasers, organizing our lives around what will keep people from being mad at us instead of the glory of God. Some of us are violent with our hands or our words, throwing temper tantrums like toddlers and hurting everyone around us. Some of us are grumblers and complainers, no matter how much God blesses us with. Instead of being content, our time and our love is consumed on Instagram and Amazon, longing for a different family or a different life or more and more Things. These are our sins, and that's not even the half of them. Now, it must be said that those sins, according to God in His Word, are damnable. They aren't small, they aren't insignificant, they aren't accidents. They are rebellions against God and against the way He created us to live. We deserve infinite punishment. For all of those, because they are sins against an infinite God. I know it's not fun, but again, the balm is coming. Would you take a moment and dwell on your own sins for a moment? Those sins that hang on your shoulders like a heavy burden. Now, with complete and perfect knowledge of all your damnable sins, God declares this to you and to me. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins Notice before we reflect on these verses, the healing balm of God's love in this psalm is only offered to one kind of person. It's the one who has faith in Jesus. Verses 11 and 13 say God's love is for those who fear Him. Later on, verse 17 says the same thing, and then verse 18 tells us that God's steadfast love is for those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. To keep His covenant, to fear Him, to remember to do His commandments, are to trust in Jesus and to repent of our sins. The comfort of this psalm is only for those who throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus. The level or number of your sinning has nothing to do with your access to His mercy. The Pharisees lived very upstanding and moral lives. And Jesus says to them, away from me. I never knew you. The prostitutes and the tax collectors fall at his feet, begging him for mercy. And he embraces them. The turning point is not your moral goodness. It's your posture toward Jesus. Do you fall before Him with your arms open and your hands ready to receive His mercy? For all those who are, He says this, He does not deal with you according to your sins, nor repay you according to your iniquities. God does not have a list in His hand of your sins with notes off to the side directing him how to treat you. He does not have a scale in front of him with your sins on one side and his care for you on the other, balancing each other out. When you are caught in the storm of life and you cry out to God for help, He doesn't analyze a history of your sins to determine how He is going to answer you. We do not worship a God of karma, who brings your sins back on you. In short, we do not worship a God who is like us. When someone sins against you, especially when they sin in a way that really hurts you, you have to kind of work yourself up to love them. It doesn't come naturally. It's hard. It's a lot of work for us. And when we forgive, we inevitably forgive in part. We say we forgive them, but there's a little part of our hearts that we still keep from them. There's a little part of us that we still hold back in protection. There's a part of our mind that won't forget what's been done to us. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that God is not like that? It takes no effort or mustering up on His part to love you in your sin. He is abounding, overflowing in steadfast love. How big is His love for you? As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's too big to measure. That's how big God's love is for you. His love is not some small portion that you better be careful not to exhaust. You cannot out-sin God's love for you. This is what Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century pastor in New England, says about God. Since His essence is love, He is, as it were, an infinite ocean of love. Without shores and bottom, yea, without even a surface. Since his essence is love, he doesn't have an initial recoil from your sin. And then he talks himself in to loving you. In the very moment of your sin, our God embraces you. He wraps his arms around you. That's what Romans 5 means when it says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's in your very worst moment that the love of God embraces you the most. God is also not like us in his forgiveness. When he separates you from your sin, how far away do you think he puts it? Does he toss it in the trash? but kind of leave it on top so that he can go back and look at it again if he wants to remember it or to hold it over your head? Does he say he forgives you but then bring it up again in an argument a few months later? No. He removes your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. Too far to measure He does not deal with you according to your sins. The final comparison isn't about size or distance. It's about relationship. God's love is a vast ocean, greater than the distance between the earth and the sky. His forgiveness casts our sin further away than we could ever reach or conceive. His compassion isn't communicated in terms of size. How compassionate is God toward you? As compassionate as a father is toward his child. It's not that we don't disappoint God in our sin, it's not even that He won't respond to our sin. Hebrews Hebrews 12 tells us that He disciplines those whom He loves. Chapter 12, verse 10 says that just as our earthly fathers discipline us, He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. It's not that God is static and unmoved by our actions. It's that He doesn't repay us. He doesn't pay us back for what we have done. In our sins, rather than pulling away from us, God moves toward us. Just like a good father, He reaches toward us in moments we feel completely overwhelmed by our sin. And He embraces us. We see this perfectly clearly in Jesus. His declaration in Matthew 11 is, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't call the calm and collected to Himself, but those who are weighed down by sin and guilt. We see this time and time again in the Gospels when the sick and diseased come to Jesus. In Mark 1, we read about a leper, someone who has a disease of the skin, who came to Jesus and implored for Him to make Him clean. The text says, Moved with pity or with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Our Savior doesn't shrink back from us when we are feeling gross. He reaches out and touches us. We hear this again from Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In our very worst Moment, the moment that we are most full of sin, that's when Jesus reaches toward us and casts away our sin and draws us near and embraces us. This is the message of the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for you. Don't forget it, like the Israelites. We constantly have to remind ourselves again and again and again that God is not like us. He doesn't treat us like we would treat ourselves. He doesn't treat us like we treat one another in our sin. We must come again and again to his word to remind ourselves of who he is and how he responds to us in our sin. Let the glories of Christ's love move you to worship him. Let His compassionate heart warm your cold heart to Him. See His magnificent tenderness and let it kindle your affection for Him. Let's hear these again. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Would you all pray with me? Father, we come to you and we confess that our vision is clouded and our memories are weak. Give us clarity to see you in your gospel. Open our eyes to Jesus and all that He has done for us. Don't give us a half-hearted gospel. Give us the whole thing. We pray that that would warm our hearts to you, that we would respond in utter devotion and utter worship of you and your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.